Loving and gracious God, we thank you that you have already been present to us here in worship. We thank you that you gather us, Lord, that you gather us in to be your people and for you to equip us. And I just pray today, Jesus, that you would encounter, come and encounter us again, that, that you would draw near to us as we draw near to you, that through your powerful word for us today, through Jesus Christ, the living word, our living hope, that you would come and have your way in our midst. Jesus, we make room. We make room for you. We make room for your spirit to work in our midst this morning. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, my Lord, my Savior, and my Redeemer. Amen. Friends, this is our sixth um, sermon in the series that we're currently exploring at the moment called Encounters with Jesus. And I'm going to bring to you a story from the Gospel of Luke. But it is mirrored or paired, as it happens, with a very similar story told in the Old Testament. So I'm going to bring both of those passages to you this morning. I'm going to have a bit of a dive into them. So the the theme for today is called The Hopeless Widow. And it's the story of how there is a widow who encounters Jesus and her son, her only son, is raised from the dead in a little place outside of Capernaum called Nain. So we're going to be hearing that story from the Gospel of Luke, but I'm going to begin with the story from 1 Kings. It's from 1 Kings chapter 17, 17 to 24. And again, it's a very similar story, the story of a woman's only son being raised from the dead. Let me read it to you. 1 Kings 17, 17 to 24. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, replied Elijah. He took him from her, from her arms. He carried him up to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow as I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched out on the body three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is truth. And then moving to our New Testament reading from the Gospel according to Luke, uh, chapter 7, verses 11 to 17. That's Luke chapter 7, verses 11 to 17. It says this. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a large crowd went with him. As he approached the gate of the town, a man who died was being carried out. He was his only mother's son, and she was a widow, and with her was a large crowd from the town. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion for her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came forward and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, rise. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Fear seized all of them, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has looked favorably on his people. This word about him spread throughout Judea and all of the surrounding countryside. 
This is the word of God. So friends, you've just heard from there um, the encounter that Jesus had with a widow and her community as he halts a tragic procession to the grave. But before we unpack that story, earlier this week uh, was the state funeral of Her Majesty the Queen. It took place at Westminster Abbey. The Queen's coffin was borne in a walking procession on a gun carriage from Westminster Abbey to Wellington Arch. The king and members of the royal family walked behind the gun carriage, bearing the queen's coffin. Following behind the royal family were the pipes and drums of the Scottish and Irish regiments, then thousands of military personnel, including mounted police, the brigade of burkers, dignitaries, advisers, staff and civilians. Once at Wellington Arch, the coffin was then transferred into a hearse for its final journey to Windsor Castle. Over 2,000 people were part of the official funeral procession and during the time of mourning leading up to the funeral, hundreds of thousands of people kept vigil and came to pay their respects. No doubt, Her Majesty was a person of privilege. Yet for 76 years, she sought service and sacrifice to Christ and to the people of the Commonwealth, seeing her vocation as a sacred duty. We have much to be grateful for, grateful to God and grateful to her legacy and we do pray for her successor. Did you happen to watch the televised funeral on Monday night? An estimated 5.1 billion people watched the funeral of the Queen. That's roughly 63% of the world's population. As I reflected on the funeral and talked about its impact with various people, there was one profound comment made by a friend that really stuck in my mind. He said this, Aren't we all in that walking procession behind our own inevitable coffin? Aren't we all in that walking procession behind our own inevitable coffin? I was astonished at this comment. I was astonished at the insight and the symbolism that it suggested. I was astonished really because we really don't like to admit to ourselves to what extent death casts a shadow over our lives or how much we have, to, we have to repress and deny the implications just to live, just to live out each and every day. I don't think we like to admit how much we avoid pain at all costs, at all costs. Psychologists and cultural anthropologists actually tell us about this. They talk about our incredible fear of dying our deep fear of ceasing to exist, together with our fear of isolation, is such a dominant element of our culture. It dominates our society. It's not exactly a modern finding, though. As you have a look on the um, screen here, there's a quote from a pastor and a, a, a theologian, John Calvin, from the 16th century. We undertake all things as if we're establishing immortality for ourselves on earth. If we see a dead body, we may philosophize briefly but the fleeting nature of, about the fleeting nature of life, but the moment we turn away from the sight, the thought of our own perpetuity remains fixed in our minds. It remains fixed in our minds. So in other words, death is something technically true, but actually unimaginable as our personal reality. So... You know what, this, all this body of research, we've only just touched on a little bit, but all this body of research comes to point to something that we hear a lot that we can, you can go and find out more about for yourself. But it says this, 
it says that what happens is that death creates a sense that all other life is meaningless, that all of our life is meaningless, simply because we die. That's what the research points to. Unless, of course, you do two things, one of two things, mind you. The first thing is, if you want to just try and make sense of the meaningless of life because of death, here's what you can do. Don't think about it. Don't think about it. Just deny it, just repress it, and whatever. Just make that thing work and just live. Or the second option is that you get a living hope. You get something that holds you, that gives you joy, that gives you strength when you face your greatest nightmare. The loss of life, the loss of a loved one, the loss of love. The heart of the gospel is that Jesus Christ is the living hope. Jesus Christ says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the power that gives everything life and keeps everything alive. This is the heart of the gospel. So why does Jesus say that? Why does Jesus come with power? Why does Jesus' power come? How does it flow? How, how do we receive it? Who receives it? And for what purpose do we receive it? They're some of the questions that we're going to be exploring for today. But here's the first one. It's an easier one. How many accounts of resurrection happens in Scripture? Does anybody know? Six. Good answer. We have six accounts. So I read to you this morning one-third of all of the accounts of Scripture about resurrection. The six doesn't include Jesus himself, mind you. We'll get to that in a second. But there are six accounts of resurrection. and Each of them shows us that God in Jesus Christ is the source of life and has the power to give life even after death. So returning to our text for today, why did Jesus' resurrection power come into the widow's life? Why did Jesus' power come into the widow's life? The reason? Because of loving grace. Because of loving grace. As we look at the Elijah story, we actually can see this deep emotional involvement that he has with this widow's boy, with this widow. We see his deep emotional identification with this child who's died under the roof that he's been given hospitality in. We read that he took the boy in his arms and he carried him upstairs to his room and he lays him on his bed and he cries out three times, Lord, my God, Lord, my God. So much more so with Jesus. Because in the Luke story, this is what he says. Verse 13 says, when the Lord saw her, when the Lord saw her, when the Lord saw the widow, he saw her, friends. He saw her. He noticed her. He discerned and examined the situation. And he understood her feelings and her emotions. And everything after that moment began to shift. And he had compassion for her. He was moved with compassion for her. He was moved not to critique, not to give a bit of a quick analysis of why she's really in the situation that she's found herself in. But he's moved. He's seen her and he's moved with compassion to act. How easy it is, uh, is it for us to see others in need as a moment for the critical eye? How easy is that for us? No, Jesus brought compassion, not critique. Compassion comes from the heart and not from the head. It's a component of love and it's not a component of our intellect. It was compassion for the widow that came from the heart of God, the heart of love that compelled Jesus to move, to move and act on her behalf. Love without action is actually just potential love. But when it is acted upon, it produces an effect, a dynamic, and it brings others to the heart of God. 
Jesus wasn't just sympathetic. He wasn't just sympathetic. Compassion means that he saw her situation and he moved to action. And we see this as well in many of those other resurrection accounts. For example, the story of Lazarus. Do you remember that story? The women, the grieving sisters, the weeping and the sadness and how Jesus comes and he weeps with these women. He pours his heart out with them. He cries with them. And he does, and he also appears to have this incredible emotional involvement. Even maybe unnecessary, you might think. Because, like, we know that after all, in just a moment, you know, Jesus will do that. And Lazarus will come walking out of the tomb. Why has he sought such emotional involvement? Why has he sought to bring to bear the depth of grief that he had, that he shared, that he identified with, with those sisters? Why does he do that? Why does he do that when just in a moment Lazarus is going to be walking out of the grave? The reason is this, Jesus is actually full of emotion. He weeps over Jerusalem. He's in anguish and pain in the Garden of Gethsemane. He has this incredible tender love for those that he encounters. He's angered at the religious spirit and turns over the tables in the temple. We see joy in Jesus. We see sorrow and compassion and gladness and anger and surprise. Did you think Jesus could be surprised? He was astonished, the word says, at the faith of the centurion. We see Jesus' distress. We see his grief. And you know, for us, we want to control and minimize our feelings, especially our negative ones. So often we just want to like stuff them under the carpet of our conscience. I know I do, but we don't need to. God wants us to recognize them as the cry of our soul to receive his compassion, to receive his loving grace and be restored to him. And we do see this so profoundly in Jesus. We see it in the Psalms as well. We see the breadth of emotion that is expressed in the Psalms that points us to a way of honoring God as we faithfully embrace the full range of emotional life. Friends, every year or so, I try to make sure I go, go away for a week on retreat. It's normally like a silent retreat, but it's actually a time when I need to just like start to be honest about where I'm at. It's kind of like time and space created where I can actually sort of say, God, these are the things that are terrifying me right now. These are the things that are overwhelming me. These are the things that I, I get sad about. And, and you know what, what, what I discover? I discover that the one who knows me the most loves me the most. I discover that those things don't create any issue between me and God. In fact, that's just an opportunity for God's love to come with extreme tenderness and power and encouragement and strengthening and support. I often just want to hide those things away. I want to hide away sadness. I want to hide away fear. Because I have this thought that maybe those things don't please God. Maybe that, maybe that, that God might be a little bit angry if, if that's what's going on or be upset with me. But actually, I learn. I'm learning Actually, I need to make space to be who I am before God and being able to be emotional and bring these things before God and doing it in a way like retreat is just really, really important to my well-being. This ability to allow my heart to get in touch and to be submitted to these and submitting these emotions to God has been really helpful. So when, when the Lord saw the widow, he had compassion for her and he said to her, do not weep. With astonishing tenderness, Jesus says to the widow, Honey, dry your tears. Honey, dry your tears. He's heard her crying. 
And Jesus is so moved by her tears that his heart just fills up to overflowing with compassion. And then what happens next? He says, young man, he says to the boy, young man, I say, rise. The dead man sat up and began to speak and Jesus gave him to his mother. Jesus gave him to his mother. Jesus entered into this story so powerfully. Jesus' resurrection power never actually comes by itself. It never gets sent, you know, like a package in the mail. That's not how it comes to us. Jesus never sends resurrection power into someone's life. Jesus goes. Jesus goes into our lives. Jesus comes into our lives. He sends himself. Resurrection comes with and through Jesus' profound love being expressed to us. Therefore, this does mean that you're invited to an intimate, authentic love relationship with Jesus Christ at the center of your life that you may too also know that resurrection power that comes. But I mentioned at the start that how does this power come into our life? I said that it came in by loving grace. So that was love. How about grace? Why grace? Why grace? Why is that part of what we see today? Because she was praying? Nope. She wasn't praying to Jesus. Because the widow was exercising her faith? Nope. Because she was like pouring out her heart and begging him to intervene into her situation? Nope. Not because of any of her goodness or faithfulness or compassion, but because of his. Resurrection power comes by grace. That means it's unmerited. It's undeserved. It comes freely. Not because you're worthy. Not because you can make yourself worthy. This widow's story is actually about to end in absolute devastation. But instead, by grace, by grace, Jesus enters into the story. And he steps right into the middle of the devastation. And the procession of death is arrested by the procession of resurrection life. This is our resurrection power. This is Jesus, the living hope that does not come because of anything good that I can do, anything great that I might be, any merit or any deservedness. It comes through Jesus Christ by grace. So in summary, why does Jesus' resurrection power come into a person's life? Why? Loving grace. Loving grace is the answer. My next question is, who gets Jesus' resurrection power? Who gets Jesus' resurrection power? Those without power. And those who have a heart for those without power. Remember, this is a story about a widow. And I know that in our modern context, we need to actually broaden this out to actually apply a really healthy hermeneutic to how we can apply this, this teaching to our own lives and to our own discipleship. But she's a widow. She's overwhelmed by grief and loss of, her, of the untimely death of her son. She's already lost her husband. Her family line has ended. She's in a world now without a male protector or a provider. There is absolute social and economic devastation for her. Absolute social and economic devastation. Friends, God's power comes to the powerless. It comes to those who know the illusionary nature of worldly power and worldly performance and worldly success. In virtually all of the resurrection encounters that I mentioned previously, or six, it is women who receive back their dead. 
The widow gets her son back. The Shilmite woman gets her son back. The widows of the church get their leader Dorcas back. The widow gets her son back that we just read in Luke. Mary and Martha get their brother back. And the daughter of Jairus, both the mother and the father, it's the only anomaly in this little pattern I got here, were the only ones where there was a man involved as well that gets, gets their child back. And then the resurrection. At the resurrection accounts, those that were first witnesses to Jesus, the eyewitness accounts to Jesus' first resurrection, all of them are women in every single one of the Gospels. Why? Well, women especially in the time of Jesus. Especially in the time of Jesus. But also now, as we think of um, our persecuted brothers and sisters, and maybe as we just shoot on, especially in the time of Jesus, they were furthest from the centre of worldly power. Widows in particular. They were excluded, they were pushed to the sides. But you know what? They got it. They got the gospel. In general, they were more receptive, more open. It was music to their ears. It was balm to their hearts. They found the gospel more coherent. They discovered God's special concern for them. And they discovered Jesus' resurrection power heals. Heals all those aspects of their life. For this particular widow, Jesus came and not only healed her emotional pain... But he dealt with, he healed her economic poverty. He healed her social poverty as well. So who gets resurrection power? Those without power. And, friends, those who have a heart for those who are without power. Because, you see, as God would desire it, when the resurrection power does come into your life and into my life, then you are most likely and most able to have your hearts turned outward ready to have compassion and mercy on the poor, on the powerless, on the struggling, those who are being pushed aside by worldly standards. So in summary, who gets resurrection power? Those without power. And those who have a heart for those without power. My final question is, is this really, for what purpose does Jesus bring resurrection power into our lives? For what purpose? There's, there's quite a few, but I just want to tap into a couple that we see in these scripture passages for us today. There's two, really. The first one is this, that they help deal with our doubts. The experience of Jesus' resurrection power helps us to deal with our doubts. We read that um, from the words of the woman uh, in the earlier text, the king's text. She says this, she says this, at the end of the raising of her son, she says this, Now I know. Now I know that you are a man of God and the word of the Lord from your mouth is truth. And similarly, in the Luke account, everybody present, the whole town has come out for this procession, meeting up with a whole band of Jesus' followers and disciples. And all of them were seized with awe and wonder. All of them said, wow. And they glorified God, aware that someone great was in their presence and that God was looking favorably and acting with blessing into the lives of his people. You see... For what purpose does it come? It comes with conviction for us. So that we can say that I know, that I know, that I know that my Saviour has risen. I know that I know. I'm so aware that I can live life aware that God's life and loving grace is at work daily in my life. I know that I know. Now I know. We give thanks to God for the experience of this in our life when it comes. But I'm wondering, what does it mean for us to be people of compassionate resurrection power? What does it mean for us to be people of compassionate resurrection power? Yeah. Remember, I'm not asking for sympathy. 
how do we act in response to the significant needs of another? Are we emotionally identifying with people? Are we like symbolically stretching out ourselves over others in prayer? Crying out to the Lord to act, to bring resurrection power, to contend over something that's needed. Are we asking the Holy Spirit to stir up these gifts, the gifts of the Spirit in us, that we might act in these ways with compassion and with resurrection power? When we do act with compassion, it is possible that other people are drawn to Jesus. Did you know that? In fact, it's not just possible, it's likely. It's likely that other people will be made alive because of the resurrection power of Jesus at work in you. Scripture tells us that that's the case. It's that beautiful image of treasure in clay jars. Remember that. Remember that resurrection life comes into us so that we can let it flow out of us, imperfect and struggling ourselves and often weak. And remember that the resurrection life of Jesus is supposed to be visible. Friends, did you realize that? The resurrection power in our lives as followers of Jesus is supposed to be visible. 2 Corinthians 4.11 says this, For while we live, we are always being given up to death for Jesus' sake. Got this? So that the life of Jesus may be visible in our mortal flesh. So that the life of Jesus might be visible in our mortal flesh. So I said that there were two, two things that happened. For, for what purpose do we receive? To what purpose does the resurrection power come into our life? Well, the second reason or the second purpose is to point us to the cross. When Jesus touched the coffin, everyone stopped. It's called a bar, but it's the coffin. They were amazed. Why? Because in the Old Testament, the law said this. If you touched something that was dead, you were unclean. You couldn't approach God, you couldn't go to the temple, you couldn't go to the tabernacle, you were unclean. When it comes to loving us, Jesus is completely unconcerned with the consequences of his actions. Completely unconcerned about what's going to happen in regards to his own safety and his own well-being. And also importantly, Old Testament Testament ceremonial laws also was God's way of symbolising that death is a curse. Death is a curse. Death is the result of sin. But friends, Jesus steps in. He takes the curse. He gets defiled. All this to show that this woman can get her son back. The only way that the widow is going to get her son back is if God the Father loses his son. The cross. It points us to the cross. Calvary. That's how resurrection power can come to us so free and so gracious and so loving because of the cross. Because the cross was where Jesus stretched himself out and imparted life to the whole world. In closing, I just want to remind us of where we've been in the story. I want us to, be, to, be, to remember that Jesus and his disciples and a large crowd halted the funeral procession of a widow's only son. That Jesus spoke to the widow, he touched the coffin and he said to the boy, young man, I say to you, rise. The disciples and the crowds will never forget how Jesus was moved with compassion to act and to intervene. 
They would never forget the tenderness of his voice, the sound of his voice, nor the words that he said. For it lingered on in their collective memories and has found its way into the pages of this gospel. The miracle takes place before everyone to see the dead man sits up, begins to speak, and Jesus hands him back to his mother. Jesus is revealed as the Lord of life, the living hope. He rules over death and the grave. Yes, even in death, we have this hope where Jesus says to us, my child, arise to newness of life. My child, arise to newness of life. At Easter, right? But also today, every day. We celebrate and bear witness to the ultimate resurrection account, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the central miracle story of our faith. And it's where Father God virtually addressed the dead Jesus in a tomb, saying this, My son, I say to you, arise. My son, I say to you, rise. And in those words, death itself is swallowed up in victory. The one who felt forsaken knew the presence of God. Jesus knew the presence of God. The Father's presence was calling him from death to life. He rose from the tomb to be victorious over the tomb, to be victorious over death. And the message of the Gospels is that this same hope, this same reality is for us today. Friends, this is our experience. As Christians, this is the resurrection power for us today. This is for us today. And I'd just love to have some time of ministry now. Wondering if you'd just continue to be open and bring yourself to that to this moment that we're going to have. I'm going to just wait for a minute and then I'm going to pray and then I'm going to invite us to be able to respond in different ways. Is that okay? Why don't we just um, bow our heads in prayer and we're just going to wait a moment. Come Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus, for always giving to us what we need. Thank you, Jesus, that your resurrection power comes to us through your profound love being expressed to us even right now. We thank you for your profound love being expressed to us right now. And this is a life-changing claim we make here. And some of us maybe have never taken hold of or even understood or believed it. And so, Lord, we ask you to help us. Ask you to help us now to believe this, Lord. 